صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, Robert. How are you doing? Nasser, I'm very well, mate. Very well indeed. How are you? Uh, feeling great. We're coming out of lockdown, so we're on the up and up. It's a good feeling, so let's hope we keep that way for a little while. And what have we got coming up today? We've got one of our dearest friends live from Palestine, Miko Pellet. Good morning, Miko. Gentlemen, so good to be with you. How are you? Very, very well indeed, my friend. Miko, perhaps we can start because I know you're such good friends with Bassem Tamimi. Recently, that family suffered a cruel, shocking pain. Do you want to give us the update and some details on poor Muhammad Tamimi? First of all, I want to, thanks for having me again. I just want to clarify, this is not Muhammad, this is not his, this is not Bassem's son. So I, I know a lot of people, there's some, there some rumors out there that this was Bassem's son that was killed. It's not his son that was killed. There, um, a couple of days ago, I, I mean, I landed here Friday night. I was, uh, I did a little quarantine a couple the days then I went and you know of course I spent a couple of days with him when I'm there so there are two two young men that were killed one that was killed Friday um, you know the army jeep was was you know squirting around this the, the village the kids came of course through stones and then kind of dispersed and then the army jeep came across Muhammad now just going down the street and just shot him with a doom doom so he hit his uh, you know the, his side and it came out front and just destroyed everything and he lost so much blood by the time he got to the hospital they pronounced him dead he was 16. You'd say he was shot through the back, Miko. I think the bullet came in the side and came out the front or something. You know, the Doom Doom, they explode inside. Anyway, so that evening we went to see the, you know, to the family and you walk in, you know, it's a big deal. The whole community is there. A lot of people are sitting around, but you walk through and you shake hands. You're greeted by the family members. And there's a look, there's this look of shock and pain and uh, disbelief that is unmistakable, unmistakable. And it was fresh on the family's faces. And you just choked. You don't. You don't know what to say. I mean, you know, you say, you know, Alayhamo and all this, but you just don't know what to say. You're cho- you're choked, and then you know, you sit there and for a while, and I, there's really no words to describe how horrible this is. And then after that, we drove to another another village, a slightly larger village, where another boy, Yusuf, was killed. He was shot about a month ago, and he finally succumbed. And he was also 16. I mean, you know what these kids are like. They're they're sweet. They're good looking. They're promising. They're you know these are just like really nice kids. These and the same thing. You walk in, everybody's sitting in this big room, and you shake hands. And as soon as you see the face, you see you know, the family. You see that face again. It's it's horrifying, you know. And then we drove back. You know, we obviously we sat in Bassem's house for a while and talked. And then yesterday we went to see Iyad. You know, our friend Iyad Durnat. His two boys have been detained and tortured for over fifty days. And the one boy, Abdul Khalik, was released. The other boy was transferred from the Muscovia to uh, Ofer prison. And I want to say something about what the Muscovia is. I think, I, I don't think a lot of people know the Muscovia. It's Muscovia from Moscow because 
there's a part of Jerusalem, it's called the Russian compound. There's a big Russian cathedral. I'm talking about West Jerusalem. There's a big Russian cathedral there right off of Jaffa Street. Years and years ago, I guess the Russian, it belongs to the Russian church and the Russian church, I guess, leased it to the Israeli police and the courts. That's where the prison is. There's a big prison there. There's a court there. And there's this whole underground dungeon of torture chambers and prison. And that's where they're kept. And this is right in downtown Jerusalem. So in other words, not 20 meters from there, there's cafes and bars and music and you know people are eating and restaurants and people are having a good time i mean it's just downtown jerusalem where israelis go on the israeli side and that's where the torture chambers are a lot's been written about them there's a cell called cell number four because you come out on all fours i mean that's the kind of culture of that place and i sometimes wish that there was like a big window that everybody going out and having a good time could look down and see what is happening what, what they're doing to these palestinians what they're doing to these kids that there would be like you know, uh, speakers with, with, you know, turn the volume on so people will hear the screaming. So that's the Muscovia. That's what, that's what that place is, the Russian compound. It's basically the, and, and the Shabak, there's where the secret police have total control there. There's no oversight. There's no press. Not, you know, nobody, nobody tells them. Nobody can tell them anything. How old were these kids? Abdul Khalik's 22. Muhammad's got to be about the same, maybe 20. And so we came to Yad, you know, both Yad and Basim, they're veterans of the system. They were all, they sat in prisons, they were tortured, they were doing the same thing. And now you see this, just this young, good-looking, sweet boy, well-dressed and groomed kid. We're sitting there and he comes over, you know, we hug and kiss and everything. And then Basim says, so how's the Muscovia? And he gave us this look of somebody who's been to hell and back and he saw something that is unspeakable. Like he just very, just a slight movement of the eyes. And you could see that this, this young man had been to hell and back. And then we sat down and they start, you know, all three of them start comparing notes, prison notes, torture notes. And he mentioned that he was interrogated for 20 hours a day for over 50 days. And I said, 20 hours, what did they have to say to you and ask you 20 hours? He goes, no, 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 you just sit there for hours. I'm a little, you know, your handcuffs, your handcuffs, you sit on this tiny, uncomfortable chair and just kind of sit there for hours and hours. It was kind of, yeah, you know, he kind of showed it for like very quickly, just kind of demonstrated. And again, he, for every so often when this, when this topic came up, he, he just had this look on his face like, fuck, man, you have no idea what I've been through. And I can't even put it in words. You think, okay, Basim and yeah, that's one generation. Now, this is another generation. Of course, Basim is young son, wide. He's about the same age. He, he's also spent God knows how long being tortured. And he was in jail, I think, for two years. And, uh, he was on the lam for a very long time because he was uh, wanted of course, Bassin's daughter and I had everybody knows what I had and what she's gone through just for pushing out uh, an armed soldier out of her front yard. And, and you go, OK, so this is the generation, another generation, another generation. And, and of course, in the meantime, all these other kids are shot and killed. You know, Bassin's got younger kids and he adds younger boys, you know, he's seven. And you think, OK, so how long is this going to go? I mean, how many more generations? Is this going to continue? But I'll tell you that look on the Khalik's face, I will never forget. And my thought is, where are we? Who's, there's nobody to protect them because they got nowhere to go. There's no, there's no oversight. There's nobody they can go to. There's no one protecting these Palestinians. There's nobody protecting Palestinian children. It's really just us. And every time a child like that is detained, every time a child is being killed, every time Israel bombs Gaza, it's our failure. You know, yeah, thousands come out to protest after the fact, but we failed. We didn't prevent the next one, or we're probably not going to prevent the next one. So that's, you know, that's kind of a little, kind of a long answer to, to your question. But the sense of, of looking at these kids and wondering, why is this continuing? Why are we allowing this to continue? And when is it going to stop? It's just, it's just haunting 
haunting thoughts. Miko, the boys, Yed's sons, they're both under administrative detention or not charged yet? Abdul Khalik ended up being administrative and he was released just a few days ago. The other son, Muhammad, they moved to offer and they're actually going to charge him. They've got a list of, a list of charges that they're actually going to charge him. So I think he had a court date. I think he was in court today. And the reality is that Muhammad, when he was killed, he's in his own home village in Namisala, which gets shot with an exploding round of dum-dum. Yeah, and I mean, you wonder, it's kind of rhetorical, but it, will there be any, I mean, is anybody going to investigate? I mean, is there going to be charges? Well, it passed, it's got anything to do with it, no chance. And you go, no, there isn't. I mean, there isn't. You, you, you shoot a human being and kill him, let him die in the street and just drive off. And it's legal. I mean, you know, if it's mafia, then at least, you know, it's not legal. They can get away with it, but it's not legal. This is perfectly legal. These guys are just killers and it's fine. They have a gun, they've got a license to kill and they know that no one's ever going to charge them. Dum-dums under international law are obviously illegal as well. You're not allowed to use them, but it's just another level that they, they use. Yeah. Oh yeah. And you know, and you, and you, when you drive, you know, on kind of the hilly side of kind of between all these villages, you know, it's gorgeous. The hills are beautiful. It's quiet during the day. It's lovely. And then, and then it's just this, this horror erupts. It's a crazy, horrifying reality, you know, see that look in that kid's eyes it's just how many and i just can't help thinking why is it why i remember him as a little boy when his father Iyad wouldn't allow him to come to the protest because remember in Belain there was to be a, a large weekly protest every friday and i usually go to Iyad's house and we'd go together and you know the little kids would want to come and he was too young his father said no you stay home you can't come you know i remember that boy this handsome young man who was a little boy who was not allowed to move and as soon as he saw the soldiers he would kind of say in this kind of, you know, this Palestinian villagers accent, you see chlab, chlab, like look at these dogs, cussing at the soldiers from a distance. And now he just came out of hell. He just been through this hell initiation. Can I just ask you, Mika, was is he the one that was shot in the leg and lost his son? No, 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 no. That's the older brother. That's Matt. The older Mitch brother. Is the okay. older brother. Yeah, and he's out. Of- I remember that happened a while ago, and he had a limp, and he, you know his sciatic nerve had been sort of shattered. Right. That's the older brother, Mitch. He's out. Of, he's he's out of the country in school. Miko, you said before, and it's a, a line that is haunting particularly to me, but it should be on the world's consciousness. It's really our fault that Israel acts with this impunity. Yeah. The international community's fault for allowing it to be able to get away with state-sanctioned murder, you know, shooting a 17-year-old kid in the back with an exploding round. I mean, it's just despicable and disgusting. One of the things that Palestinians obviously have been asking for and the momentum is increasing, and I know when you came to Australia and you've always been a very big advocate of it, is BDS. And, you know, we've had a couple of significant wins this year between, you know, Ben and Jerry, the ice cream people, but, you know, Norway's largest pension fund and, you know, Human Rights Watch now calling it apartheid alongside Betselem. Tell us a little bit about BDS. Well, you know, the Zionists are very good at sidetracking everybody and getting everybody off topic. And so rather than everybody getting behind supporting boycotts and sanctions and, of course, divestment, against Israel, people get dragged to these ridiculous conversations with the Zionists on anti-Semitism, not anti-Semitism, where should you boycott, where you shouldn't boycott, all this nonsense. I mean, the very notion that opposing Israel is anti-Semitic, I think, is, is insulting to Jews. But uh, and it's complete nonsense. It's not even worth the conversation. But they drag everybody. So every, instead, of, instead of focusing on making sure that Israel cannot participate in the Olympics, and in the World Cup, and in other sporting and cultural and academic and all events, period, around the world, that Israel is treated like the pariah that it should be. Um, people are wasting time talking about this other nonsense. And until Israel is, Israeli society has to pay a heavy price, 
And that is a heavy price, I mean, for a country like Israel not to be allowed to participate, to be completely boycotted, to have sanctions imposed on it, to have no fly zone, you know, over Gaza. And the things that, you, that, 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 are, that were already done in other places, but somehow Israel is, they find Israel exempt for some reason. Until this happens, there's going to be more and more generations of Palestinians killed, and and uh, and there's nobody else. In other words, if we don't do this, if we don't demand this, if we don't prevent the next round of killing in Gaza, if we don't prevent and uh, protect uh, these young 16, 17, 20-year-old Palestinian kids, and even younger, actually, nobody will. Nobody will. There's nobody else. People, and when I say we, I mean you know people of conscience everywhere. There's nobody else. So if we don't do it, it's not going to get done. And the world has failed. We have failed. Every time another Palestinian is killed, it's our failure. To have, we did not protect them. And they talk about, you know, when the world needs to step in, when there's genocide, the world needs to step in, when there's crimes against humanity, the world needs to step in, and so on and so forth. Well, what are they waiting for? What more needs to happen before the world steps in? And nobody can do it but us. In other words, it's got to be us forcing our elected governments. It's forcing our elected officials to do something. There's no problem sanctioning and boycotting Cuba. I mean, arguably in a pandemic, denying aid, etc., to Cuba is a war crime. The UN just voted again. What was it? There was only two countries in favor of the continuing blockade of Cuba, the United States and Israel, and 184 against, even Australia voted against Mika, I've noticed this year, and particularly this last massacre in Gaza a couple of months ago, that support for Palestinians for our struggle, self-determination, etc., has increased in Australia. Is, is that the case in the United States? Well, that's what they say. But again, until we're at the point where we are actually able to prevent the next assault, then who cares? You know, what difference does it make? In other words, if, the, the only test that I that matters, that I believe should matter, is the actual test of holding Israel accountable and preventing the next and, and, and standing and defending Palestinians. People ask me about this too in America. There was this poll, there was that poll, you know, 30% of American Jews think this, 40% of American Jews think that. I don't really care what they think. I want to know what they're going to do. You know, and unless they stand up and do something, unless they stand up and demand protection for Palestinians, and I mean real protection, uh, as long as, you know, Bernie Sanders says, oh, no, no, we need to tone down the rhetoric as Israel is, is, is bombing Gaza and murdering civilians. And you think about this, this just, just how can you say tone down the rhetoric? You know, I mean, how horrible is that? So I don't care what they think, really, unless they actually demand that their elected officials act, you know, until they demand that the Sixth Fleet, which is here in the Mediterranean, come in and, and impose sanctions and impose a no-fly zone and provide humanitarian aid, care to, to Palestinians in Gaza. Until we see action, you know, who cares what they think? I want them to do something. And so I, I don't find that, that there's any meaning in these, in, these, in these polls and these changes of people's opinions unless there's real action. There was a recent poll that said increasingly young Jews are, are realizing that Israel's apartheid and they're moving away from needing Israel to define their Judaism. That's got to be some sort of help. Okay. All right. What does that mean? I mean, I don't know what that means practically. Unless they, you know. I think what you're saying, though, Mika, is, is true because so many people can have an opinion, but they don't do anything. So their opinion really is just null and void, isn't it? It doesn't matter. Yeah. You, we want to know that, you know, the people, what they will do and when they'll do it and how they'll do it. Yeah. I want to see how this change in their opinion actually brings about, you know, Action, real action. And until it does, I don't know that it matters. You know, it's kind of like if you listen to you know James Baldwin's interviews. He goes, I don't know what 
you know, American, white Americans think. I don't know what the policeman thinks. I don't know if he likes me, if he doesn't like me. The only thing I can go by is their action. And so now we know what they think. Fine. There's a poll that we know what they think. So what? Where's the action? And how many, how long is it going to take for this, for their opinion to formulate and change and transform into real action? Another 10 years, another generation. The kids born, Palestinian kids born today, are they safe or are they still not safe? In other words, that's, that's really, that to me is the only measure. And until there's, we're clear about that, I don't know what, I don't really care about their opinions. I think that it's probably a, a perfect segue to, you know, of, of people doing something. And we were talking about the Olympics just before. Uh, you were mentioning that uh, two of the Olympians stood aside and said that they wouldn't participate against Israel. That's making a stance, a pretty good stance. What happened there? Yeah, at first it was the Algerian. Uh, his name escapes me right now. But first it was the Algerian uh, judo uh, competitor he said he would not compete and you know and then and then the recent i think it was yesterday a sudanese uh, also a judo competitor stood up and said he wouldn't compete and they pay a heavy personal price you know they're kicking. there's only one judo federation around the world it's not like other some of the other sports or other martial arts where you know there's several judo there's one international judo federation it's 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 headquarters in japan it's very strict and i think both of these you know, I did martial arts my whole life. You know, I, I think these guys demonstrated what real martial arts is about. It's putting principle first. And, uh, and, and that's what they did. They showed that they're great martial artists and that martial arts are about principle. And so they stood up and they said, we won't compete with these people. We want to legitimize and recognize the state of Israel. I mean, it's enormous. I mean, they've, they've practiced and studied and trained their entire life for this moment. Oh, yeah. To be in the Olympics. I mean, can you imagine? No, it's, it's incredible, and their, their moral compass is far greater than their, their um, willingness to win. It's fantastic. And that's exactly how it should be. That's exactly how. Just on that, we should, we should mention to our listeners, Miko, that you're six damn black. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm a six damn black boat, yeah. I've done martial arts you know, my whole life. And that's what martial arts are about. It's not about winning or losing. It's about winning. I mean, he won. These guys won, I think. And they show that they're great martial artists without even stepping on the mat. In fact, they did it by refusing to step on the map because the, they wouldn't compete against a, an opponent that was not worthy. I think it's a great message, but it, of course, you know, it's, it's a great message. It's a great example. And we need to see, you know, I'm really hoping that by the next Olympics, Israel will be completely banned. But again, it's going to be up to us to demand that the Olympic committee, you know, they're going to sort of put a lot of pressure on the Olympic committee to do something like this. It's going to take time and work. And if we don't do it, it's not going to happen. It's not going to, nobody else is going to do it. Miko, the reality is that the Algerian, it was easier for him to withdraw because Algeria doesn't have relations with Israel, but Sudan recently did normalize. So what about this poor guy when he goes back to Sudan? How do you think he's going to go? Algeria has a history of standing with Palestine, and it's well known. Algerians are you know, supporting Palestine and the Palestinian cause for Sudan, the fact that the government has signed some kind of normalization agreement with Israel it has nothing to do with the people. The people of Sudan, I'm sure, do, you know, not, we're not going to see Sudan. Some of they see, you know, Sudanese tourists coming to shop in Tel Aviv. That's not going to happen. It's just like, you know, Israel has peace agreements with Jordan and Egypt. You don't see tourists. You don't see people from those countries coming here at all. Boycotting is, they don't even think of it as boycott. It's just like, how, how could they possibly come to this place and, 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 and show support to this country? You know, I don't think they even realize that it's a boycott. It's just so naturally you know, ingrained that you, that 
it's not going to happen. And so I think he's probably going to get a lot of support. I think he's going to be heralded as, as a hero, at least as, at least a popular hero, if not by his government, at least by by people. Mika, tell our listeners about your um, YouTube channel. That's something that you've been doing a lot more on sharing it on your Facebook, but a lot more social media stuff. Yeah, it's not so much. I mean, I have a YouTube channel. But I have a podcast on Patreon. It's patreon uh, slash mikopella.com. And I've been interviewing some really great people. Um, we just put out uh, uh, Ilan Pape. I've interviewed uh, Ofer Kasif yesterday, who's a great member. Of, you know, it's probably the most radical Israeli to ever serve in the Israeli Knesset. Uh, I'll be dropping that soon. I'm on TikTok. I've been, I've been posting videos on TikTok for my last trip and this trip quite quite a lot and there's quite a lot of views so people can go check out i mean i'm, I'm on all social media i'm everywhere but yeah the the probably the the, the most comprehensive stuff that i have is, is is the podcast that's you know there's a there's an audio version there's a video version that people want to see the whole thing i've had muhammad bakri the actor i've had salah bakri and i don't know if people know you know this new movie that almost won the academy award the present they won the bafta award a short 24 minute brilliant brilliant Palestinian movie. I spoke to Farah Nabulsi, who wrote the script and directed it. So, I mean, it's I've been I've been really lucky. I've been able to interview some really good people. So, they can go and, and check all that stuff out. Micropella.com, it's all out. Anybody go there. Because I know you've got a lot of articles. There's tons of stuff. As well, yeah. which people can yeah, read. Ton, so, yeah, micropella.com. We'll put some hyperlinks in the podcast, Miko, so our listeners can follow. You're in Palestine at the moment. You're visiting family and friends. What's it like on the ground? Aside from Iyad and uh, Jerusalem, what's a, what's the sense there? I mean, Sheikh Jarrah said one, the demolitions are there, the massacre was only two months ago. Is it back to situation normal or? This is normal. I mean, the, the, this is normal. Home demolitions, expulsions, and killing is is the normal here. That's what's, uh, you know, that is the normal here. I'll be Sheikh Jarrah tomorrow. Um, you know, there's the weekly protest against the, against the injustice and the, the ethnic cleansing of that community. Um, violence there has been really quite severe, and also in Siwan, uh, the other side of, of, of Jerusalem, you know, outside the old city, there's terrible violence there. Expulsions of, of uh, home demolitions, uh, really terrible things, particularly in Jerusalem, because because you know they they really want to accomplish, they really want to accomplish this ethnic cleansing of Jerusalem, this Judaization of Jerusalem, and they're putting a lot of effort into that. And so there's some seriously terrible things going on all over Jerusalem. It's really, it's really quite horrifying. But again, this is nothing new. This is, you know, this is an ongoing process that's been going on for a very long time, and it continues, and it becomes more severe. Um, at the Alexa compound, there's been, you know, there are these tours that, that the settlers take, these provocation tours. Last time I was here, I actually went on one. It's um, uh, some have more people, some have less. Uh, Recently, just a couple of weeks ago, they had I don't know, several hundreds of these settlers on on Temple Mount provoke, and you they go up with with you know a huge a huge uh, number of, of armed police to protect them, so to speak, which of course makes things worse. It's even a greater provocation that way, and so it's I think I think you know people just don't appreciate how severe this is and what the stakes are. But it couldn't be more severe, and the stakes couldn't be higher. And if we don't act, then we're not going to. The Jerusalem that we know is not going to exist. You know, the Israelis talk about their security system, and they, you know, um, sell it as being so sophisticated. How the hell did you get on one of those tours? <laughs> well, so Al Aqsa is open 
there's certain there um, there's certain hours where like you're you know you're supposedly non-Muslims are allowed to go. And I went many years ago. There's a bridge that goes from the Western Wall because you can't go through the regular gates if, unless you're if you're not Palestinian Muslim. So you go through this gate, this bridge, and that takes you up there at certain hours. And so I went, like I said, several years ago. I did this. I did this, and I just I was able to wander around by myself. Uh, because the grounds are spectacular and beautiful. And as you go up this bridge, it's about halfway through, you have to stop, there's police, and they say, no, you have to wait for the tour. And I said, what fucking tour are you talking about? And they said, well, you know, the tour. They have to go with the tour. You have to go with a group of, you know, with, with the armed guards. And right at that spot in the middle, they also built this huge model of the Jewish temple that they want to see replace Alexa. And so, and I'm looking around me and I'm seeing all these settlers, all these, you know, crazies that go there to pray. And I'm thinking, I really got myself into this mess. But I said, okay, I'm here. I'll, I'll just go along. And so eventually they let everybody in. They take you with this an enormous contingent of, of armed police. It's, it's really, you think you're walking into, I don't know where, there's Viet Cong there or something. I mean, I, I don't even know. I've never seen anything like it. And every few hundred meters, they stop. And these guys pray, which you're not supposed to do. And they tell you, you're not supposed to pray. Of course, then they stop and they let these guys pray. So half of it's a whole hour. The whole thing takes about an hour. But half of that, these guys are standing there and praying. And they're praying for the destruction of this magnificent mosque and this magnificent base. Uh, and they want to build something that they call a temple, which, of course, is far from being a temple. Um, and it's really quite, quite horrifying. And, of course, they look at me and they think, who's this guy? And Why isn't he praying? Why is he with us? And, uh, yeah, why isn't he praying? And uh, I'm just like thinking, God, I'm just, you know, it's shocking to see crazy people. I mean, it's, it's really shocking to see such hatred and violence masked in, in religious attire. That's really what it is. So, yeah, so I just walked up and waited and walked around this thing with them and and you know it was it, it's 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 messed up and horrifying in, in so many different ways you know and then they say well you know jews should have a right to pray and all this the thing is they don't want to pray they want to destroy it's not about giving people the right or not the right to do this that or the other they want to destroy they want to provoke and in may during the uprising here we saw the, the pictures of the flames up on the hit on the, at the Alex, near the mosque and these thousands of young Israelis on the bottom in, the, in this plaza next to the wall, next to the Western wall, dancing with Israeli flags. And to me, that is the most frightening sight because that's precisely what they want. They want it to, they want it to be some kind of an accident, you know? And mind you, this was the, during Ramadan. So it was Ramadan, the Israeli soldiers are raiding the mosque. There's fire right next to the mosque. Israelis are you know, just below dancing. And what I think they want is to see that the whole thing burned down as though it was some kind of an accident. And then they can say, oops, sorry. But I think this is coming. I don't think there's any doubt in their mind that this is where they're going. And I think people need to gear up to the fact that this might happen any day and then there's not going to be a return. You know, if a lot of mosque is gone, it's gone. If the Golden Dome is gone, it's gone. And then it'll be too late. There'll be nothing we can do. And I think people just need to understand just how realistic the scenario is. This is not some fantastic, you know, doomsday scenario. This is this is the atmosphere. Bloody hell. Well, Miko, anybody that was looking for some uptick or some enthusiasm out of this report, sadly, won't get that. It's a dose of reality and a challenge to each of us to do a little bit more, to boycott, divest and sanction, to organize within our communities and make sure we act to protect those kids that 
so desperate you need it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, people need to be, I, I want people to be pissed off, angry, and, and upset. I don't want people to feel, I mean, sometimes people think, oh, yeah, well, there's this process that's taking place. It's going to be okay. There's somebody else doing something, making it okay. Well, there is, if we don't all get off our backsides and act, nothing's going to happen. It's going to get worse. I mean, nothing's going to happen. Things are going to happen, but it's going to get worse. Nothing good's going to happen. We are the ones that can make it happen. If we don't, nobody will. That's just the bottom line. That's just the way it is. And so I don't want people to think there's something good happening because if they're not doing something, then it's not happening. It's only going to happen if they do, if we do something, if we do something together, if we strategize, if we talk together, if we organize, we stop being distracted by the by these ridiculous uh, sidetrack arguments about anti-Semitism, not anti-Semitism. It's a whole other issue. It's got nothing to do with is our responsibility. This is something we should all stand in and do something about Fantastic. Thanks, Miko. I appreciate your time today. Stay safe and we'll speak to you soon, brother. All right, buddies. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. That was Miko Pallad. Do yourselves a favor. Go to mikopallad.com. M-I-K-O-P-E-L-E-D.com. mikopallad.com. To check out all of Miko's work, you can see his webinars, his articles. There's details on how to buy his books. If you haven't had a chance to read it, you should buy this book in particular, The General Sun. Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. He's also got another book, which is just the saddest book to read, The Story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. Uh, it's called Injustice, and it speaks about some Palestinians that were raising money in the United States and have been sentenced to the most horrific sentences, just absolutely outlandish betrayal of justice in the United States. Thanks for listening to Palestine Remembered. Remember, tell your friends, share the podcasts, and remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.